0: Why don't I give God a hand? Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Amen. 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 How many of you are blessed by the worship team this morning? Amen. Sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit because God's love, God's goodness is just filling this room right now. Yeah. Thank you, worship team. I mean, if you all want to stay up there, it's fine as well. <laughs> But yeah, no, today, um, as why well I mentioned, my message is very much in line with serving God. And a lot of us have this misconception where we need to serve God to earn His love, to earn His approval. And some of us serve so much, give so much. And sometimes when we reach a point where we are discouraged because everything that we do seems like it's never enough. So, today the big question that I want to address um, as a family in Harvest Generation, um, if you look back in the past weeks, uh, uh, the, the, the messages from Reverend Titi, from Pastor Ryan, telling us to slow down, telling us to pace ourselves, telling us to reflect, on why we do what we do. You know, it's so aligned with this season of our church that we need to mature into. There was a point in time where every one of us needed to ra ra rah, build, 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 and push, 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 and driven by faith and, 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 and just stretch ourselves thin to, to accomplish what needs to be done. But I believe in this season, God is reminding us again of His true nature. And this question is, Is God a slave driver? Is God a maximizer? Does God really want to squeeze every drop of us for his own use? And the answer is very simple. It's no. God is not a slave driver. God does not want to squeeze every drop of you for his use. You may tell me, Aaron, I don't believe you. I don't believe you because, you see, all the CG leaders keep encouraging me, serve, serve, serve. Worship team, if you're in a worship team, and if you're like me, almost every week on, I got every reason to complain. (laughs) Yeah? So you may say, I don't believe you because you are always serving. So I see your life as though God really wants to maximize you. But my response is, God is still not a slave driver, then you may ask me, so prove it, Aaron. And my response to that is, okay, let's dive into the Word and let's find out what God says about serving Him. And first and foremost, we're going to go to Matthew 20, verse 28. I'm going to make reference to um, the NLT version because my English is not so good, so I'll use the easiest English version possible. (coughs) So Matthew, 28, Matthew 20, verse 28, it says, For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ Himself, came not to be served, but to serve others, to give His life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus' own words. He said to the people, I did not come so that you would serve me. In fact, you may want to search through entire scripture there's not one time that jesus tells anyone come serve me what did jesus tell the disciples when jesus called them come serve me no come follow me come follow me very different the world in its authoritative um, um, structure will always demand you to serve the one that is of higher authority than you. But Jesus being the King of kings and Lord of lords, when he came, he didn't demand people to serve. Thanks, guys. He didn't demand the people to serve him. In fact, he told the disciples, come follow me. Come follow me. And further down in Matthew 25, Again, the disciples were struggling with each other. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Who, who, who will get to sit next to Jesus in, in, in heaven and so on and so forth? And Jesus' response was, the greatest among you will be a slave of all. The greatest among you is the one who is able to serve each other. He didn't even say, the greatest among you is the one who can serve me best. So did Jesus demand people Did Jesus instruct us to serve him? I cannot find it in the Bible. And if you do, come tell me. Because I I was struggling with this as well. I always thought God called us to serve him. But that's not the reason why God calls us. And we will learn this more when we go down further in (coughs) in this message. Yeah? Let's go back to even from the very beginning. Um, To prove a point, I like to look at different, different uh, timelines in the Bible because if it's a principle of God, it will repeat itself through different, different people, through different, different times recorded in the Bible. We start with Adam, alright? (coughs) If God is a maximizer, Adam would never have Eve. And Eve would never have Adam. You see, in Genesis 2, verse 18 to 23, it says here, Then the Lord said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper which, who is just right for him. So the Lord formed from the ground all the wild animals, blah, blah. blah. I'm going to move on very quickly. And then we go straight down where he says, But there was no helper just right for him. God himself acknowledged that man is not sufficient on his own. If God was a maximizer, God would demand maximum output from Adam. When Adam was struggling, God would have said, Why you struggle? I created you. But God's response was not that. He wasn't out to wring Adam dry. God's response was, "Yeah, you need a companion. You need someone to to be with you as a helper, as a counselor, as your best friend." So the Lord took out one of the rib, one of the man's ribs, and closed up the opening. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. Alas, the man exclaimed, "This is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh." She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And take note of this, woman was not an afterthought. The creation of women was not an afterthought. It wasn't like God created Adam and found out, oh, Adam cannot handle by himself. Let's figure it out how to create a woman to help him. No. In fact, very much in the beginning in Genesis 1, God said that he created both man and woman, male and female. God already had a plan that man was never meant to be alone. God already had in his heart to, 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 to create a way that man does not need to be maximized in his kingdom. Yeah? In Genesis 1, it says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So from the time of Adam, we can see that God is not a maximizer. He knew Adam's weakness. He acknowledged Adam's weakness. But he didn't ask Adam to deal with it himself. God intervened. God had a plan. So we move on further down in Genesis, Samoa, where we look into the life of Moses. right? Moses to me, if you read through scripture that when he had an encounter in the burning bush, um, I feel annoyed on behalf of God lah, because he kept giving excuses. He kept saying that oh, I'm not compatible, I'm not, I'm not worthy, I'm not qualified. I, I don't even know how to use my own mouth. That's what Moses said. Yeah. And to me, if I, if I were to work with somebody like that, I would be like, Ugh, oh my God, go away. <laughs> but God didn't do that. So if God were to be a maximizer, Moses would not have been chosen and Moses would not have Aaron to help him. So we read from Exodus 4, verse 13 to 17 with Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush, at the burning bush. Moses said, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said. What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well. And look, he is on his way to meet you now. God already planned it before Moses made that complaint. He will be delighted to see you. Talk to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with both of you as you speak. And I will instruct you both what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people and he will be your mouthpiece. You will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say and take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform miraculous signs I have shown you. See, even with all the complaints, the excuses, the annoyance that God had to go through, God did not give up on the call that he had for Moses. Moses. God didn't look at his weakness and say that, yeah, you're not good enough. I want someone else which I can maximize to to fulfil this to fulfill this purpose. No. God oh, in, in this case, or in many cases, God chose the l- most lowly to perform the greatest miracles that has ever happened in the history of the world. Everything that Every miracle that came through Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, the water that came out from the rock, the quail that rained down from heaven, the manna that rained down from heaven, never happened again. And those were the greatest miracles of the time. The seven plagues that that went across Egypt, all this happened through Moses. And he was the king of excuses. (laughs) But God still chose to use him. Because God is not a maximizer. God was creating opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for Moses to respond. And finally, Moses said yes. And that was all God needed. In fact, God created a way for Moses to not even have to depend on himself. It wasn't his cleverness. Moses was where he is at this point in time was because he depended on his cleverness before. Remember, he killed the Egyptian god. That was his own doing. He didn't depend on God. He didn't seek for counsel. He didn't sought after God for instruction. He just did it out of his own will, out of his own irrationalness. The passion is pure. The passion to want to see his people free is pure. It, it is from God. The passion that God put in him to set his people free is from God. But the way he did it at first was not. So God had to bring him to a point where even at this very moment where he doubted his own ability to speak, God says, I still want to use you because I'm not depending on your ability. I'm asking you to depend on mine. And all you have to do is just say yes. And of course, we know further down the story that Moses did deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt and many miracles followed after Moses. So we look into another Bible character. Now we move down to Judges where we look into the life of Gideon. Now Gideon was the most cowardest coward you can find in the Old Testament. Why I say that? He was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now you have to understand what what's the purpose of threshing wheat. Threshing wheat is when you gather the wheat Okay lah, in Malaysia, we don't grow wheat so much, so we grow padi la. Yeah, we grow rice, padi, right? We have to take bundles of padi and we have to hit onto uh, a wheat treasure or a padi treasure where it looks like, looks like a basket in order to get the little grains of rice to come out from the padi. Then we gather the rice and then we process it and make our delicious white rice and Hainani's chicken rice, and so on, right? But this dude <coughs> was extracting paddy from a place where you press orange juice. Imagine this. You put rice into your fruit blender, your smoothie blender. Does it make sense? It doesn't make sense. Now, why did he do that? Because he was so afraid of the enemy that he would go to the place that no one would ever think anyone would ever process rice in that location. No one would ever think of putting rice in a smoothie blender. So he went to where the smoothie blender is to process his rice so that no one would find him. That's how cowardice he was. That's how afraid he was. And if God were to be a maximizer, Gideon would not have been chosen because his level of courage was ridiculously insignificant. God didn't depend on Gideon's courage. God wanted to give Gideon courage through him. Judges 6 verse 15 says, But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the world. In the whole tribe of Manasseh, I'm the least in my family. He literally said that. Not only did he belittle himself, he belittle his entire family. He belittle his entire tribe. How cowardice is that? It's like I'm saying, I don't dare to do it because my father also like that one. And everyone that is a key family, ah, tak boleh pakai one. My whole tribe tak boleh pakai one. Don't choose me. That was his response to God. But God still chose to use him. And even when God gave him instructions, specific instructions to destroy the idols, and God gave him the authority to do so, You know, when God instructs, God covers it with His grace, covers it with His protection. And God goes before you when God gives you an instruction to do things right. So God already gave instructions to Gideon. Go, destroy these idols. You know what Gideon did? In Judges 6, verse 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants as, and, and did as the Lord commanded to destroy the idols, okay? But he did it in the night. He did it in the night. Why did he do it in the night? It says right here, because he was afraid. God gave guarantee already. Still he was afraid. Still he was doubtful. Still he was fearful. And if God really were to be a maximizer, do you think God would use a person like Gideon? So the truth is, God is not a maximizer. He used the lowliest guy again, Gideon, who even said that his whole family and delivered people from the Midianites. In fact, the first battle that they went out, they didn't even have to draw their swords. God went ahead of them, caused chaos in the camp of the Midianites, and they fought among each other. God won the battle for them. God didn't need Gideon's courage. God just required his simple obedience. God didn't need what Gideon have to bring it wasn't his courage it wasn't his ability it wasn't his historical uh, line of achievements it wasn't his accolades god just wanted him god just wanted him as who he is now i move on a little further to first kings we look into the life of elijah and we are all very familiar with uh, Elijah and uh, Mount Carmel, where he did the amazing miracle of calling down fire and it consumed the the, the 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 sacrifice, and then all the uh, all the other the the other priests that were worshiping idols. You know, they, they they cried out all day and nothing happened on their sacrifice. That was an amazing miracle that God did. Fire coming down from heaven consuming the sacrifice till nothing was left. Even the water that Elijah told the people to pour onto the sacrifice were all licked up. Everything was gone. And immediately after that, his life was threatened. Elijah's life was threatened. Because the kingdom of Babylon wanted to come and kill him and he he felt depressed Uh last time i always wondered you know um why uh, why why after a great miracle you can feel depressed just because one queen this lady called jezebel threatened your life you just saw the miracle of heaven wouldn't you mm-hmm. feel very confident that this same god that did that miracle would be there for you now after digging through deeper it he's you know, Elijah was depressed. He he went away and he laid down under a tree. Um, that whole story in Kings in First Kings 19 verse three to eight. Um, you can flash it out on the screen. Um, that verse. And you no, know, I was digging through why why would he be in a position of depression? Now it wasn't because he didn't trust God. No, because he never cursed God. He never said, God. You, you don't work, man. No, he never said that. He said, I, I feel like dying. I feel like dying. And the reason for that is because he has exhausted out from himself everything that he had to serve. And he was at a point in, in time where he was wondering, is this even worth it anymore? After such a great miracle, after such a great revival service, yet there are still people who question the existence of God. God, I don't want to do this anymore. That was why he was depressed. It wasn't because, it wasn't just because Queen Jezebel was threatening his life. It's because after such a great miracle, why still nothing changed? In a sense. Or why didn't things change in accordance to how he expected it to be? he probably expected the whole nation to come to know God. But the response from the kingdom was, I'm going to come out to kill you. (laughs) I think many of us have been in this situation before, where we serve, and we serve, serve, and we serve, whether it's in church, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's with our kids, And somehow nothing seems to change. God, I'm following every ounce of your word to do this in accordance to how you want me to do it. Why isn't the outcome getting better? Now, if God were to be a maximizer, he wouldn't have responded by giving bread, water, and rest to Elijah when he was paralyzed in this depression. You see, God, when he was ministering to Elijah, he didn't come down to remind him of the passion, of the purpose, of the vision, of the mission that he was called to do. God came down to strengthen him by giving him bread, by giving him water, by giving him rest, God let him sleep under the tree. And when it was time, God himself came down and woke him up. Hey, there's fresh bread and water there. Eat, drink. For the journey ahead is a lot to bear. Then God allowed him to sleep again. Then after a time, God woke him up again. Hey, get up. There's more fresh bread. There's more fresh water. Get up. Eat. Drink. You need the strength to go, to take on this next journey ahead of you. God didn't even remind him of his depression. God didn't even question him. Why, ah? Why are you depressed, ah? God didn't have a one-hour session with him like a Therapist or like a counsellor. So what's the background of your (laughs) problem? Why do you feel sad? Tell me. God didn't do that. Because God wasn't trying to maximise him. God was trying to restore Elijah's dependence on him. The water and the bread, the tree that was there, were all creations of God. He was able to rest he was able to eat. He was able to drink. From the providence of God. Then, right after that, God led him to a place where he encountered the the wind, the earthquake, the fire, and the still small voice. Now, why 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 did God want to do that with Elijah? In the midst of his depression, you know, he has, he's not out yet. God wanted to remind Elijah that in spite of all these great things that I can do, I'm still speaking to you like a friend. I'm still speaking to you like your best friend that's standing next to you because you matter to me. I don't need you to bring an earthquake. I don't need you to bring a strong wind. I don't need you to bring fire. I just need you to depend on me as your best friend. So now we move further ahead to the New Testament where Jesus talks about the prodigal son. And I'm going to pay a little attention more on the older son, the older brother, all right? So the first point is, if God were a maximizer, the father would not have received the prodigal son, alright? If God were a maximizer, the younger son would have failed all the tests, right? For us, how we qualify people for promotion is people that has proven themselves, right? But this fella, he got a ring, la, he got a new garment, la, he got new sandals, la, he got the fattest-fattest wayu beef cow slaughtered for his homecoming all undeserved he just wasted his father's wealth and he came back a hero if god were a maximizer that would not have happened yeah now look at it now now let's look at it from a different perspective if you live your life thinking that a god is a maximizer then your end would be like the older brother in this parable If you think that God is a maximizer, then your life would be like the older brother in this parable. Let's read Luke Luke 15, 25-32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Notice that he didn't even step in the house. He listened from afar. He had to ask people that were coming in and out out of the house, serving the house, what's going on in the house. Because at that very moment, he was already suspicious. This should not be happening. There should not be a party. Because I'm working outside here, how can there be a party in the house? He already feel there's some form of injustice really. That's why he didn't, he didn't even go in to sort after the father to, to understand what was the situation. He asked servant. Such pride, right? We carry on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf, that wayu beef cow. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was very angry and would not go in. His father came out and Begged him. Who does the house belong to? Who does the land belong to? That place where the older brother was working, the fields that the older brother was working, who does it belong to? Does it belong to the older brother? No. It belongs to the father. And who was the one that came out begging for the older brother to come in? The father. He was begging in his own property. The extent of the love of the Father to reach out to us even in our most stupidest time, that he would beg for us to turn from our ways in his own kingdom. That's how much he loves you, that he will reach out to you. father wanted the older brother to understand that the value of having his younger brother back was greater than anything in the kingdom anything in his property anything in his wealth but the older brother could not comprehend so there is a saying that god extends his grace but if we do not respond to his grace what follows after is judgment. God was extending grace to the older brother. For some of us who have been serving, slogging, you know, we, 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 we ourselves are wringing ourselves dry. And we find ourselves in a position where we do not know why we are doing what we are doing anymore. We don't know what's the meaning of why we do what we do. This is because there's a misprioritization or mispositioning of your identity. See, the older brother's source of identity was in his service to the father. He forgot he was a son of the father. He built his identity around his service. That's why he say in, in the scripture, "I have done all these things." For you, for so many years, you didn't even give me so much as a baby sheep or a lamb to celebrate, my friends. So he was building this identity around his works towards the Father. He thought his joy was found in the works, but you can read from Scripture there was no joy. He was serving, but there was no joy. He was serving out of that expectation that one day I will take over my father's position. He wasn't serving out of love for his father. He was filled with resentment, anger, bitterness, jealousy. He had no genuine love for his father. And the sad thing about this parable is we know nothing about what happens to the older brother after this. There was no celebration, there was no turnaround. Understand that the purpose of this parable was towards the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time. God was, Jesus was warning them don't be like the older brother. And this is the reason why we burn out. we lose the very reason, the motivation, the very source of why we serve. We need to understand that our identity is not in our works towards God. It's not in our ministries. It's not in our talents. It's not how well we run service, how well we do worship, how well we run ministries, how well we serve our families. All these things are good, but that's not our identity. Our identity is found only in one place, and and it is in his love for us. Our identity is in the love of the Father. His love for us is the very reason why he made us his children. It wasn't because of anything else. He didn't call you children because you can serve him. He called you children because he loves you. This is our identity. In First John 3 verse 1, it says, See how much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. He established that identity for us as His children because He loves us. Amen? Now, let, now let's progress to take one of the lives of the disciples as a strengthening point to God not being a maximizer. We take the life of Peter. Peter is a very interesting character. If Peter were to be alive today, I would be also very annoyed with his character. You know why? Because he speaks without filtering up here. So it's both a good and a bad thing. Lah, huh? the, the bad thing is, if there's no filter up here, whatever that comes out, it's all carnal. It's all rubbish. Right? But without the filter up here, when the Holy Spirit speaks, ah, that's a good thing as well, because he doesn't filter with his own understanding. He allows the, the Spirit of God to speak through him. But that's after Jesus has restored him life. Okay? So if God were if if God is a maximizer, Peter would not have been chosen and restored by Jesus. Yeah? See, Peter himself was the one that told Jesus, I will never leave you. I will go to the cross with you. I will die with you. you. You 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 cannot wash my feet because I'm so undeserving. Then Jesus told him, If I don't wash your feet, you cannot be a part of me. Okay, wash my whole body. Yay. You see, that kind of bodo, you know, it's like <laughs> I cannot tahan. I get I get very I get very annoyed when I read Peter's life, but I I understand why God has chosen him. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> so Peter is probably the I mean Peter is the only man recorded in all history that has walked on water. We all know that, right? But while he was walking on water he was stand, well, when he was standing next to the person that is enabling him to walk on water, which is Jesus Christ, at that point in time, he can doubt. He can doubt. I'm not belittling him. I'm just saying that all of us have that, where even when Jesus is next to us, our focus is still on the winds and the waves that surround us. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's why Jesus, with his grace, rescued or picked Peter up, right? In Matthew 14, 31, it says, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Now, Jesus did not ask, why you got no courage? Eh? Why you not why you not brave? One, eh? Why you so silly? Eh? Let's break down the problem of your courage in, in three points. Tell me your history were you beaten as a child were you were, were were you abused by your teachers were you no Jesus didn't go into all that history Jesus just said this one thing to Peter why didn't you realize that I was here with you Jesus wanted Peter to depend on him not depend on his own experiences his own courage his own strength Jesus was saying I am here with you I am, and the all of me is here right next to you. Why do you still not trust me? And I believe Jesus wasn't saying this in a condemning way. But he was elevating Peter's faith, little by little, to make him realize that he can depend on Jesus. While Jesus was on earth, he can depend on Jesus when Jesus was exalted back to heaven through the Holy Spirit. It was a step-by-step guy, step-by-step leading for Peter to grow his faith. Then we move on to when Jesus was arrested. You know, I said earlier, Jesus, I mean, Peter said, um, yeah, I will die for you, I will go to the cross for you, I will go to the end, blah, 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 all that kind of silly things. But Peter was the only one that was recorded to deny Jesus three times. All the other disciples fled, yeah. But Peter outwardly denied Jesus. He was the only one. And Jesus already told him, but he still denied, he still said, no lah, I won't want Jesus, don't don't worry, I won't deny you. But in Luke 22, verse 61 to 62, it says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. After Peter has denied Jesus three times, huh? Suddenly, the Lord's words flash through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. I believe with all my heart that when Jesus was looking at Peter, he wasn't looking at Peter with eyes of condemnation, he was looking at Peter telling him, It's okay. It's okay. I'm not asking you to depend on your courage. But when I come back for you, depend on me. And Jesus did come back for Peter. After Jesus was resurrected, Jesus went to the shores where the fishermen were to go and look for Peter specifically. Jesus did it because he loved Peter not because Peter had any accolade that Jesus can use to further his purposes and plans Jesus went and looked for Peter because he loved Peter and here's a little fun fact the same way that Jesus came to restore Peter was exactly the same way that Jesus first called Peter it was when Peter was out fishing right so, when, when, when Peter was first called, we look in Luke 4, verse 7. Luke chapter 5, 4, 4 to 7. Sorry. Luke chapter 5, 4 to 7. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, who is Peter, Now go where it is deeper and let down your nets. Master, Simon replied, We have worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I will let down the nets again. And this time, their nets were so full that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon, both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. That was the first calling of Peter. When Jesus just told Peter, cast your nets again. Trust in me. And Peter did so. Then during the restoration of Peter, after Jesus had been crucified, after Jesus has resurrected when Jesus went and looked for Peter at the beach. <clears throat> John 21, verse 4 to 6, it says, At dawn, Jesus was standing at the beach. And wherever Jesus goes, there's a purpose. One. He was looking for Peter. But the disciples could not see who he was. He, who Jesus, called out, Fellows, have you, ca- have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, Throw out your net and on the right side, right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish. Why did Jesus do that? Jesus was reminding Peter again of when he encountered the very first love towards Jesus the first calling bringing him back to that place where he first encountered Jesus sometimes in our disillusionment sometimes in our in in our frustration of like "Ah, this is so not worth doing what we do one of the key things that we can do is to come back into remembrance of our first encounter with Jesus of how Genuine that love was that we was poured out upon us and that we were releasing back to God. There was no qualification. There was no talent. There was no um, uh, uh, excellence in service or whatever. All this. There was no. How how is your CG growth? How's your ministry growth? <laughs> how many people have you reached out to? Nothing of that sort. There was no measurement of achievements. It was just pure. Encounter of God's true love. We need to learn to come back to that place so that we don't burn out in our service towards God. Then what are the current practices that we still uphold? That sometimes we have a false conception that God is maximizing us. One area is tithing. We always talk about tithing in our church, and we have no apologies about upholding this principle of tithing. One tenth of our income goes to God. One tenth of our income goes to God. He says in Leviticus 27:30 One tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain, from the fields or fruits from the trees belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. This one tenth is a non-negotiable. Now, if God were a maximizer, he wouldn't ask for one tenth. Think about it. What does your boss demand of you in your commitment and your work? One tenth? tell me which boss wants only one-tenth of your capacity and your ability in their workplace. None, right? So the world operates on maximizing you. But God doesn't. That one-tenth is what God wants you to commit in your expression of love towards Him. He's asking for one-tenth. But who does the 10 belong to? Where did the 10 come from? It came from God. Again, looking back at the parable of the prodigal son, where the father was begging the older brother, in his own property, in his own field, God is asking for one-tenth of what belongs to him. The ten ten belongs to him. He's saying, give me that one-tenth in your expression of your trust, your faith, and your love towards me. But keep the tenth that I have blessed you with. The powerful truth about tithing is that one-tenth gives us access to God's fullness of power that covers all areas that no matter what we do, we can never cover. That one-tenth gives us access to the power of his kingdom. And through tithing, you know what God is saying? I'm not maximizing you. I'm asking you to maximize me. Why? It's the only passage of scripture that goes in with a challenge. You always do TikTok challenge, right? It's a bit silly. But God is saying, there's a biblical challenge here. Try me now in this. You tithe and try me in this that I will not pour out all there is in heaven over you. They will not open the windows of heaven for you. God challenge you to try. Kind of contradictory in a good way to also um, the Old Testament, which says don't, don't test the Lord your God. <laughs> but this is the only green light that God gives to try Him. Why? Because It's not because God wants your 110. Your 110 means nothing to God in its own value. The 110 means something to God when it comes from your heart. Because you're telling God, God, this is the first of all that I have Is yours. Because I honor you first. Before I pay my bills, I honor you first. Before I settle my debts, I honor you first. Before I pay my family expenses, I honor you first because, I want the Lord of Heaven and Earth to be over my debt. I want the Lord of Heaven and Earth to be over my family. I want the Lord of Heaven and Earth to be over my finances. I'm declaring God's lordship over my life through my one tenth. Malachi three, ten to twelve. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. put it, put me to the test. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and diseases. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Why the Lord of Heaven's armies? Why why, why didn't God say God of all creation? Or God of all all creativity? Or God all-powerful and all that? Why God of Heaven's armies? It's because God will discharge His resources over you to guard over you. It's like the king saying, my army is at your disposal when you tithe. My army will guard over you in areas that you cannot So we feel protected in Malaysia because of the Malaysian army, right? (laughs) What more? The armies of heaven. So God is not out to squeeze every drop of you to accomplish what he wants to do. But God desires for you to fully maximize all that He has made available to you to accomplish His plans and purposes that benefits the body of Christ. You see, God wants you to commit to Him, not for Him to use all of you of what you have, but for you to use all of Him of what He has, that you can be a blessing to the body of Christ, that you can edify the body of Christ. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. Nowhere in this scripture says, figure it out yourself. Nowhere in this scripture says, go seek consulting, a consulting firm on your strategy and how to move forward in your life. Nowhere in this scripture says, go chart out your path yourself and uh, submit to me for approval first. Lah. No. God is saying, the plans are with me. The resources are with me. Everything you need is with me. All you have to do is trust. And I will be the one that will lead you. You do not need to figure it out yourself. Matthew 11, 30 says, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If God were a maximizer, he wouldn't ask you to cast all your nonsense to him you I just wanted the best of you. Give me your good stuff. Your nonsense stuff, you keep yourself. Lah. Again, show of hands, how many of you bring your nonsense to work and then your boss is very proud of you that you bring your nonsense to work? But this boss up in heaven is saying, give me your nonsense because I love you. He is our Father in heaven. He wants to carry your burdens and He wants to exchange it. He wants you to exchange your burden with His joy. With His joy, with His rest. Take my yoke. What does that mean, take my yoke? It's not that Jesus take off His yoke and put onto you, you know. It's not that. He's asking you to take off your old yoke. Come, be yoked with me. I will walk with you. You know what yokes are? I think maybe in this generation you've never seen a bull pulling uh, a a kind of machinery to plow through the paddy fields, right? So normally if there's two bulls, there's this wooden yoke that they'll place over the bull's neck to lock the two bulls together so that they'll walk together. Jesus is saying this, you do not need your necks to be locked onto the world. You do not need to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders take off that weight, throw it away, give it to him and take on that yoke that binds us together, us and Christ together so that Jesus can walk together with us carrying our burdens, carrying the weight of our lives, journeying through, journeying with us through everything. Jesus is inviting us to do that And Jesus said, for my yoke is easy to bear. Why is his yoke easy to bear? It's because Jesus is carrying it with you. His yoke is easy to bear because Jesus is carrying it with you. First Peter 5, verse 6 to 7. So humble yourselves under the mighty under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, He will lift you up in honour. So give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares for you. Some of us grew up in children's church. Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Again, the world doesn't want your nonsense, but God is asking for your nonsense. Isaiah 43, verse 4. And in the Message Bible, it says this. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade creation just for you. Again, nowhere in this scripture states any qualification at our side. It's God who's reaching out to you. God doesn't want to squeeze you dry. He wants us to live in His fullness. Why does God want us to give all of ourselves to Him? So that He can consume it? No. God wants us to give all of ourselves to Him. The good, the bad, the things that cannot see sunlight. Because he wants to give all of himself to us. He wants to take all of us in exchange for all of him. That's not a very fair trade, right? <laughs> How many of you, if you own a Mercedes, you will trade it for someone else's myV? Make sense. It really doesn't make sense. But that's how God operates. His love for us, we, we, we cannot fathom it. He really wants us to abide by His ways, which are higher, His thoughts, which are higher. He's not asking us for our opinion, He's not asking us for our input. He's not asking us for our qualification or our experiences. He said, lay those all aside. Yes, I will use them in due time. But first come to me. And if you serve, serve out the abundance of God's love overflowing from your heart. Not serve to be filled, but serve because you are filled. Very different. Very different. If you serve to be filled you end up in a lot of frustration that's where you burn out but if you serve because there's an overflowing in you God I I, I just feel your love and your hand over, over situation I want to express through my service I want to express it through my giving I want to express it through my ministry, I want to express it through my works of excellence. But we need to understand first that we need to be filled with the love of God. He wants to take us who are made from the dirt. Dirt is insignificant, you know. Genesis 2, when God created man, he took from dirt. Dirt is insignificant, but full of potential, right? You will never pick up dirt and say, oh, so valuable. But if you do plant things, you will see dirt as potential. So God took something that is lowly, that every every other thing in creation steps on, and created man out of it. The lowliest thing on earth. God created man for his glory. So if we are to depend on our own skills, we are depending on dirt. If we are depending on our own capacity, we are depending on dirt. If we are depending on our own experiences, we are depending on dirt. God is saying, although you are made from dirt, I value you as my children and I want to pour my glory over you. And why does God do all these things? All these things to show us His love, to pour out all of Him for us, to create opportunities for us to enter into His fullness. Why does God do that? It it, it doesn't seem like a a sensible thing. It's just like, you know, some of our CG leaders, I know that some of you are are frustrated because there are just some members, right, that you invest, 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 invest and nothing changes, it's okay. And sometimes you just want to give up. But look at it from a perspective of God who is almighty, all-powerful, creator of heaven and earth, comparing His standard to our standard, that He will pour all of Himself for us. Why would He do this? No, we him when you come up. Why would God do this? It's because He he is good. God is good. Why does He love us? Because He is good. And all His ways are good. And His love for us, with our very human mind, we can never fathom can never comprehend. We can never understand. See, like what I shared with you earlier about my love towards my son, I also don't understand. He did nothing for me. Uh, He's never served me. He's never brought me a cup of water. (laughs) He's never cleaned the floors. Arrow and I clean after him we feed him we clothe him we give him a shelter we protect him but he has done nothing in return yet the love we have for him we cannot understand how much more the love of the father for us he did not call you to serve him he did not call you for service. He called you because he loves you. He calls you because you are his children, your identity in it. Your identity is in his love. And why does he go through all that? It's because he is good is good, and all his ways are good. going to invite you all to come forward. I believe that every one of us need to come back to that position, that posture where we understand and we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us again with the love of God. To allow the Holy Spirit to remind us again that we serve of the abundance of what He has filled us with. And God is not a maximizer. God is not a slave driver. Slow down. Slow down. Sit at Jesus' feet and allow Him to minister. Allow Him to remind you again your first love first encounter that genuine love that genuine expression that you had the very first time you invited Jesus in your life as we sing this song again I encourage you to be free And how you want to respond to the Holy Spirit. You want to kneel, you kneel. You want to stand, you stand. You want to raise your hands, you raise your hands. But at this very moment, I do not want us to waste this opportunity again to allow the Holy Spirit to fill us again, to fill us anew. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. circumstance, every area of our lives that we do not understand why we need to go through it, Holy Spirit, we invite you into that situation, into
1: that circumstance, Holy Spirit,
0: God, you're so good. God,
1: you're so good. God, you're so good. You're so good too. Yes,
0: you believe that let's give God a hand let's give God a praise offering let's glorify God let's rejoice before the Lord cause God is good and his mercies endures forever Lord you are good and all your ways are good hallelujah hallelujah
1: we praise you God hallelujah thank you Jesus hallelujah praise you
0: God thank you Jesus you God. Amen. Amen. Now may the love of the Father, the great, great love of the Father, the fellowship of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us as we go in peace. Cover us with your glory. Cover us with your love. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your encounter with us, Jesus. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 I don't do the first song, okay? <laughs> Let's praise Jesus. Amen.